every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Milena Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I study explosive transients and their local environments. You're listening to episode 46, Brown Dwarfs in Unusual Places. It's time to go on a hunt for these unusual brown dwarfs. But before we do, <laughs> Milena, quickly remind us, what is a brown dwarf? So brown dwarfs are these interesting kind of in-between objects that are too low mass to fuse hydrogen to helium. So they're not quite stars, but they do fuse deuterium. So they're not really planets because planets don't fuse anything. They're typically defined as being objects that are between about 13 and 80 Jupiter masses. So some people would say that brown dwarfs are supersized Jupiters, and others might say they are failed stars or mini stars, something like that. Do we know how brown dwarfs form? Which of these viewpoints is more correct? So supersized Jupiters is actually an interesting epithet because, weirdly enough, most brown dwarfs, of course, they have a size distribution, but most of them are a little bit smaller than Jupiter, actually. But they have significantly more mass, so they're not a planet. I see. And it's believed, at least from the papers that I could find, that they form by a similar mechanism as stars do, by the collapse of massive amounts of dust and gas. But there needs to be less collapsing material than you would need to form a star, and there are tons of different theories for how you can get just some of the material to collapse, and not all of it in the case of a star. But I really like the way you phrased this question, because it also raises the idea that you can get a brown dwarf by either losing material past what you need to make a star or by gaining material past what you need to make a planet. And the latter process actually might be possible too, as I'll talk about in my bite. Cool. Okay, excellent. So we would say then it's more common to see a brown dwarf with some orbiting planets than, say, a brown dwarf orbiting a star. I think it's more common to see a brown dwarf orbiting a star. I'm not sure that a brown dwarf with planets around it has been detected. <laughs> Okay. I have seen lots of articles raising it as a tantalizing possibility that we should expect to find planets around brown dwarfs, but I don't know if that mm -hmm. detection has ever been made. Yeah. So even though brown dwarfs kind of form like stars, they wouldn't have planets around them. If they didn't form with their own protoplanetary disk, then probably not. So gotcha. that's, that's going into this question of how they actually form, which isn't completely clear. But part of it is just that they're so hard to discover, so we don't really have a good sense for the demographics of how they form and how they evolve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that leads me to my next question, which is how do you actually discover and study a brown dwarf? Yeah, so brown dwarfs have been found actually quite a few different ways, but most of them that are known right now were detected with the 2-micron All-Sky Survey 2-mass, which allows us to directly see the infrared glow that brown dwarfs give off. They usually have to be pretty nearby for us to actually see them because they're mm -hmm. not giving off a lot of radiation. So often we might search for high proper motion objects that are, again, relatively nearby when we're looking for brown dwarfs. 
A lot of the brown dwarf detection techniques are actually pretty similar to exoplanet detection techniques. Oh. So when you're looking specifically for brown dwarfs with stellar mass companions, you can use direct imaging where you block out the light from the central star and you look for objects around it. And quite a few brown dwarfs have been found that way. Um, they can also be found with the transit method or the radial velocity method, which are very common mm -hmm. planet search methods. So they either produce a dip in the photometry of their host star as they pass in front, or they produce a wobble in the host star's spectrum due to their gravitational pull. And that's basically just the same way that you would look for exoplanets. It's just a bigger body that comes out of it. In my class this week, for the labs that I'm running, we are talking about how exoplanets are detected by these two methods <laughs> using some little in-class simulations. Nice. So it's certainly at the forefront of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say you did just discover what you think to be a brown dwarf. How can you rule out that it's not a gas giant planet or an M dwarf star? This is kind of a nuanced question because, Melanie, you mentioned brown dwarfs as being able to fuse deuterium but not stably fusing hydrogen and actually at the very beginning of their lives stars do this too they start fusing deuterium mm. but then they continue on to the track to stable hydrogen fusion so early on actually they look very similar to a young star but typically if you have an infrared spectrum or multiple photometric observations you can distinguish it by color from a star later on in its life but if you have like a Pre-stellar core, for example, it's not clear if you're going to get a star or if some of that material can be stripped off in some weird mechanism and leave the remaining core on the path to becoming a brown dwarf instead. To my knowledge, brown dwarfs are usually just characterized by their mass, and I think that you can go a little bit further to try to see are they more star-like, are they more planet-like based on their spectrum, but usually anything so hmm. if it's hmm. i mean i work on the planet side right and so if something is 13 jupiter masses there's kind of the question of like is this a planet is it not a planet and people mm -hmm. just call it a brown dwarf at that cutoff it's not like 13 versus 13.5 versus 14 is really an exact number it's just kind of a rule of thumb gotcha okay that makes sense i mean the overlap is kind of fuzzy anyway yeah, it's also interesting, Melanie, you mentioned as the definition for brown dwarf as being like if it's between 13 and 80 Jupiter masses. I also mm -hmm. found uh, a person that was arguing that their definition for a brown dwarf is if it forms from collapse of gas and dust and it's smaller than a star, then it's a brown dwarf, regardless of the, yeah. the mass distribution for it. I would agree with that if you want to go by the formation mechanism, mm -hmm. like determining what you categorize an object is. In practicality, that's very hard to do because <laughs> you can't sure, like sure. observe it and be like, ah, yes, this formed from a disk. I can, I am certain it's of course. a yeah. little more difficult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the danger of using uh, formation as your categorization tool. Yeah, I agree. That would be ideal to be able to do that. Then you just end up with a bunch of lost objects where you're like, I don't know where to put these. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the astrobytes, my last question briefly why are brown dwarfs interesting objects of study? So brown dwarfs can teach us about both planets and stars. So I think that is something that's just very valuable in order to understand the different formation mechanisms for different astronomical objects. But they're also really interesting in their own right because we don't really understand their origins. And so understanding them for the sake of just physics, I think is quite useful, or also for the sake of understanding these other adjacent subfields. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that even though brown dwarfs are typically painted as these rare edge cases in the kind of like dividing region between stars and planets, 
There's been some recent work like that. There was a paper by Music and others in 2017 that suggested that brown dwarfs might be nearly as common as stars oh. and just really hard to find. So if they really are everywhere, then it's our job as astronomers to learn as much about them as we can. Those are two convincing answers to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our first astrobite today. So Alex, you're going to tell us what happens if a brown dwarf tries to be your friend. <laughs> I, I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to do something like that. <laughs> so the astrophyte that I'm presenting is called Red Giants and Brown Dwarfs, an Unusual Friendship, by Viraj Kamen-Belkar, based on a paper submitted to AppJ Letters this year. And so for a little bit of background, we have talked about this in previous episodes, but the different phases in a star's life often manifest in changes in its brightness and temperature, which we can understand by plotting them against each other on a Hertzsprung-Russell or an HR diagram. For most of a star's lifetime, while its brightness is roughly constant and it's being stably powered by hydrogen fusion, it occupies a spot along a well-defined track on the HR diagram known as the main sequence. Now, when it's done burning hydrogen fusion at its core, if it's somewhere between one half to five solar masses, it moves off of this main sequence as hydrogen burning moves from the core to the outer shell of the star, and radiation pressure from this burning causes the outer envelope to be pushed outward. And this is what's called the red giant phase of the star. And it only stays here for about 1% of its lifetime. It's very short, but what's really interesting about the red giant phase is that this is not a stable configuration. So when it's in the red giant phase, the star can change brightness in some really dramatic ways. So what causes these brightness variations that we see in red giants? Yeah, there are a number of different phenomena that can all take place simultaneously. It's an extremely chaotic configuration. So the star can pulsate as its outer layers expand and cool and then contract and heat up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. The stars at this stage can spew out large amounts of dust. And that dust can, can swirl around the star and block out its light in complicated ways that are difficult to model. And in addition, large-scale convection causes upwelling of hot material in the star and that translates to brightness fluctuations at the photosphere. Hmm. So all of those pieces are what we think to be a pretty exhaustive list of all the ways that a red giant can change brightness over timescales of like a couple of weeks. But it turns out they also change brightness on longer timescales, timescales of months to a year. And we call these brightness variations long secondary periods, or LSPs. Seems like a good name. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So now the question is, what's causing long secondary periods? All of the previous explanations that I mentioned are not satisfactory for explaining this particular timescale of event. Do all red giants have these long secondary periods? That's a great question. Not all of them do, but it's common. I think I mm. saw maybe a third of red giants in this particular phase will exhibit long secondary periods. Okay. So it's a large enough fraction that it's not just some weird edge case. It seems to be something that's happening in a lot of different systems. Right, but that means it's not intrinsic to all red giants. Correct. So if you're wondering what might cause long timescale dips in the brightness of a red giant, your guess might be a companion star. But it turns out the optical light curves of long secondary period stars show only a single dip when the primary star dims. And if a bright companion were getting eclipsed too, then you should see kind of two distinct events offset from each other as one star gets dimmed by the other, and then the reverse happens. 
So I know that this episode is about brown dwarfs, but... Yes, you do. <laughs> couldn't it be a planet? It could be a planet too, right? That's a good point. Yeah. In this case, <laughs> they're guessing that the system, the thing, if it is a secondary body, has to be large enough that okay. it blocks out a significant fraction of the red giant's light. Aren't planets bigger than brown dwarfs, though? That's what you said, right? Brown dwarfs are more massive, but they're smaller. So we don't necessarily know that it couldn't be a planet, but it might be a companion star. If it is a companion of some sort, then we should see the two distinct dimming events, right? But what you can do in this case is if you don't see the secondary dimming event in the optical, you can look for it in other wavelengths. In this particular case, if you think that the secondary body might be a brown dwarf, which is going to be bright at infrared wavelengths, you can look through the infrared light curve of this system to see if you see the secondary dips and try to model that. Okay. So now to jump very quickly into the methodology to explore these systems, they obtained mid-IR light curves of about 700 LSP stars, long secondary period stars, from the NEOWISE mission and optical light curves from the same systems from the Augle mission. And they used some basic period finding algorithms to go looking for secondary eclipsing events within both datasets. Okay. And did they find any or many? <laughs> so this is the really exciting result. They found nothing in the optical data in the way of a secondary dip, but they found mm -hmm. secondary minima in around half of the NEOWISE mid-IR light curves. Hmm. Wow. Half. So what does that tell us? So this is really compelling evidence that a significant fraction of these LSP giants might have brown dwarf companions, which would be an incredibly cool result. And I actually love in the first part of their conclusion section of the paper, they, they don't hesitate to hype up this result. They say, and I quote, Wood et al. stated that LSPs represented the only form of unexplained large amplitude stellar variability known at this time. This is no longer true. Wow. It's pretty direct. They're like, now we've explained it. Maybe the other half is planets. Mm, could be. <laughs> so actually, the authors in this case proposed that Jupiter-sized planets form around these stars. And then mm. because in this phase, the star is spewing out massive amounts of dust, that dust can get accreted by the orbiting planet until such a time as it reaches a mass threshold and is converted to a brown dwarf. So this is kind oh. of like starting from a planet and going to a brown dwarf in the other direction, like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. But this is also kind of like the, the speculative part of the paper. I mean, the statistics mm -hmm. line up for how often we should expect to see systems like this if this were actually the case. But hopefully at some point in the future, we actually catch a system in the midst of this kind of accretion and growth process between the red giant star and uh, a massive planet. So is that how you would typically expect brown dwarfs to form around red giants through this dust accretion thing? Or are there other ways to form brown dwarfs around red giant stars? Yeah, they tossed this out as one of the explanations. They did not make an exhaustive literature search of all the different ways and mm -hmm. come up with discriminatory methods between them. I think we're just going to need more data before we find out like, A, is this even really a brown dwarf that's doing this? And then if we have confirmation that these are systems that are common, then we can start thinking more about what kind of formation mechanisms make sense. But they tossed it out as that, like, at least it's a plausible explanation at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, this could cool. crack open a whole new type of brown dwarfs, right? Dividing them into those that formed primordially, uh, you know, in, in themselves and those that formed as planets and then later accreted 
matter from the star. So thanks for bringing us this really cool astrobite. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to move on to our bi-weekly brown noise dwarf sounds for <laughs> astronomy and science. Ooh, brown noise dwarf sounds. Ooh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here we go. Predicted values. Observe data. What do we think? Okay, so this is definitely a model and some data being compared. Absolutely. That part should be obvious. Uh, It really takes me back to the last time I was abducted by aliens and probed. The model kind of reminded me of a spectral energy distribution, but then the data didn't. <laughs> so I don't know. Now I'm now I'm lost. I started thinking of it as like a transient event, but it didn't. There wasn't a characteristic like dimming and decay of the light yeah. at late times. It just kind of like stayed bright. So maybe like maybe this is like a, a dip of a transit or something. Nope, not there on this one, guys. Um <laughs> The most obvious thing is that the model and the data do not agree whatsoever. That's because this is a sonification of the M33 galaxy rotation curve. So the Mm -hmm. model is the rotation curve without dark matter. And it's wrong because the actual rotation curve gets pretty flat toward the end. It doesn't fall off. It actually keeps increasing. To summarize, what is being played is the velocity versus distance from the center of the galaxy. And so the model reaches a peak and then falls off as you move further away, but the velocity in the actual observed data for stars keeps increasing as you get further from the center Mm. because of dark matter. Anyway, this was a sonification uh, produced by Ruben Garcia Benito as part of the Cosmonic Sonification Project. And I learned about Cosmonic when Ruben presented at the second workshop on astronomy beyond the common senses, which I also presented at on behalf of Astro Soundbites. Thanks, Will. Yeah, I was happy to do it. Really a great, well-organized conference. A lot of cool ideas and inspiration, including a great plenary talk by Gary Foran, who we had on the show a while back. Heck yeah. Shout out to Gary Foran. Yeah, so we will link to the Cosmonic website, and I'll also throw in a link to the workshop if people are curious to explore what that was all about. But I'll say one thing that came through, one of the really common themes in the workshop was when you make steps to increase inclusivity, you actually can produce innovations that everyone benefits with. It's just another reason to always consider inclusivity in the actions, outreach and teaching and so on that we take in astronomy. Absolutely. It's a major takeaway for pedagogy as a whole. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> hope everyone's taking notes at home i know i am <laughs> all right now it is time to take a journey into the desert with melena in search of an elusive brown war oh yes heading <laughs> back to the homeland of california <laughs> <laughs> all right so this astrobite was written by macy houston and it's called a brown dwarf in the desert and it's about a paper by paul et al 2021 And I'm really excited about this asteroid because it ties into, you guessed it, planets. Uh, So (laughs) 
as we mentioned in the introduction, brown dwarfs are kind of in between planets and stars. So a really intriguing question about them is whether they form more like stars or more like planets. So do they form like individual or multi-star systems but through collapsing molecular clouds? Or do they instead form like planets within a disk that surrounds the star through either gravitational instabilities or core accretion, which are the two different primary ways that you might form a planet? And one interesting clue in this puzzle is that there have been very few brown dwarfs orbiting very close into their host stars, that is within about five astronomical units of the host star, whereas many lower mass hot Jupiters have been found at these distances. Mm -hmm. And that's what's called the brown dwarf desert, uh, because there have just been very few brown dwarfs found there in that parameter space, making it a desert. And by contrast, a lot of free-floating brown dwarfs have been found. So actually, most known brown dwarfs are free-floating. And only a few hundred of the 2,000 or so brown dwarfs that are known have been detected with a companion star. If one of the major ways that we use to discover planets is through reprocessed light from their host star, do mm -hmm. we just have a really biased sense for how many free-floating planets there are relative to how many free-floating brown dwarfs there are? When I said there's an overabundance of free-floating brown dwarfs, I meant relative to brown dwarfs with companions as opposed to relative mm -hmm. to free-floating planets. Mm -hmm. There actually are probably quite a lot of free-floating planets out there. It seems like there's a peak in roughly Neptune-sized planets, I believe, uh, based on some recent papers from microlensing surveys. But I don't think that's terribly well-constrained because it's actually pretty difficult to find free-floating planets, especially yeah, the really tiny ones. Yeah. Cool. So the paucity of brown dwarfs on these short period orbits has been interpreted as evidence that brown dwarfs might just be the tail end of two different distributions. So they might be the high end mass of planets and the low mass end of stars, and there okay. might not be a lot that's in between. So that's kind of some general background for what the brown dwarf desert is. Mm -hmm. And this astrovite is about an object that is within that desert. So it's one of these rare objects that actually falls within that parameter space. I know when talking about planet formation, people talk a lot about different migration processes that can change the radial separation between a planet mm -hmm. and its host star. Do we know those to affect, do we believe them to affect brown dwarfs as well? Some of them quite possibly could. So you might be able to get a brown dwarf that forms farther out and then moves into be close to the host star similar to a hot Jupiter. Um, it's actually not totally understood how hot Jupiters form either. And so it, once that's sorted out, maybe it might help us to understand how brown dwarfs Got form it. too. Okay. Specifically these ones that are on these shorter period orbits. So Melania, you mentioned that this astrobite is about one brown dwarf in the brown dwarf desert. Should we call it an oasis dwarf? <laughs> you can call it an oasis dwarf. <laughs> or a brown oasis. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> so Melania, what makes this particular brown dwarf special? Yeah, so this brown dwarf is called TOI-263b, so that means it was discovered with the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, TESS. That's not what makes it special, but I think TESS is pretty special. Mm. <laughs> Warms my heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was discovered by Parvainen et al., 2020, um, and it was detected using the transit method, so it's really short period. It produced this dip in the light curve of its host star, and it was found to be a large object with a deep transit around a cool star, um, which is specifically around an M3.5 dwarf, where 3.5 just tells us how hot it is among the range of M dwarf temperatures. So they found that this planet was 
somewhere around Jupiter's radius with an orbital period of only 0.56 days, which is really, really a short period. This is the shortest period of all brown dwarfs that have been found with the transit and radial velocity methods. Wow. Cool. So that's pretty cool. We're able to actually get the mass, we can get the radius, and it's this incredibly short period brown dwarf Mm -hmm. around an M dwarf star, which is a pretty small star. So it's just a really interesting system in general. There are not a lot of systems that are known like this. So the first paper, this Parvain and et al. 2020 paper, uh, just got the radius. But what this asteroid is talking about is a paper that then found the mass of the brown dwarf. So they took radial velocity observations with the espresso spectrograph, and they studied the Doppler shift from the companion object and found that it was 61.6 Jupiter masses. So it's not a planet. It actually is a brown dwarf, which in this case is more interesting to have it be a brown dwarf than a planet. Um, And then they've just validated the 0.56 day period of the brown dwarf as well. How did they measure the mass? So they got the mass using radial velocity observations with the espresso spectrograph. Um, So they were looking at the Doppler shift of the host star's spectrum, the M dwarf star that it's orbiting, and just looking at how it shifts. And we have to assume the mass of the star, which, I mean, if it's a main sequence star, we know really well, right? Yes, and it is a main sequence star. Mm -hmm. Got it. They also, in this paper, were able to show that the rotational period of the host star is 0.56 days. So it's synchronized with the brown dwarf's orbital period. Oh, they're tidally locked. Yeah. Well, I was looking into this, and I, I think tidally locked has a slightly different definition, doesn't it? You're right. They're bo- it's both. It's like um, the same side of the brown dwarf always faces the same side of the star, like Pluto and Charon's orbits. We don't know how fast the brown dwarf is rotating, yeah, but yeah, its okay. orbit is synchronized with the rotation of its host star. It has to be tidally locked for that to happen. I'm almost positive. Why is that a requirement? That's the most stable configuration for an orbit like this. Yeah. But slightly less stable is the tidal locking. So I think it's required. I don't think you could have synchronous rotation of the star and not have tidal locking. Hmm. But it's an interesting point. The authors were suggesting that that means the star and the brown dwarf are interacting in some way, but I wasn't sure if that meant like dynamically interacting or like Hmm. more physically interacting. Hmm. Um, Yeah, but... It's, it's kind of cool that they are synchronized. I think it's expected that an object that's that short period would generally be tidally locked. Like most hot Jupiters that are super short period are tidally locked. So it makes sense that the brown dwarfs would be as well. It's also really interesting because I feel like a lot of the studies that I've seen about brown dwarfs studies their atmospheres, the weather on them, because this is just such a unique aspect to these objects as distinct from stars, for example. I wonder... Mm-hmm it being tidally locked and continually heated on one side, how dramatically that influences the weathered patterns on the surface. Yeah, it would probably be very dramatic, I would imagine. (laughs) But, I mean, it's probably on a circular orbit, so it's just, like, dramatic all the time, as opposed to, like, small periods of intense drama. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) So, okay, Melina, we have this system... What does it tell us about how brown dwarfs form? Yeah, so TOI-263b is the sixth brown dwarf found around any M dwarf. So it poses this interesting question for brown dwarf formation theory because it's, well, it's got this really short orbital period, it's got the spin orbit synchronization, and it's around a pretty low mass star. So because M dwarfs are pretty low mass, they're not expected to have 
particularly massive protoplanetary disks either. Um, so the author suggests that this particular object probably formed more similarly to a star within a collapsing molecular cloud that fragmented to form both the M dwarf and the brown dwarf. But it's also possible that it could have formed through fragmentation in the M dwarf's protoplanetary disk. Uh, and it would have probably had to form way farther out than where it is now. Hmm. So that would be like if you have a disk and there's a gravitational instability so that you get a ton of gas accreting onto one object. Uh, and then it would somehow migrate inwards, which is kind of an open question exactly how that would have happened. So it's a pretty interesting mystery. And hopefully finding more of these objects in the future will help us to better understand how these objects form. And I think this is super cool because it's a really interesting dynamical problem. Like how do you get this thing on this crazy orbit? Uh, and what does that tell us about hot Jupiters and how they differ from or are similar to brown dwarfs? So. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it really makes me wonder, like if you have a collapsing, fragmenting clump of gas and dust, like what fraction of the clumps are gonna end up forming brown dwarfs versus stars? Right. And what determines that fraction? Yeah, and like, why would you get two different objects instead of all of it just accreting onto one? Like, this is a right, super short right. period orbit. Mm, so, right. it's pretty cool. That's yeah. really interesting. Great astrobite. Thanks for bringing this, Milena. I really, you know, you did a great job conveying the significance of this detection. Thanks. I love planets and things related <laughs> <about> to planets. <laughs> Even in the brown dwarf episode. <laughs> so, let's move along to our one sentence summaries. Alex, what's yours? Dwarfs are elusive creatures, but if you look closely in the infrared, you might just be able to make out their footprints as they sneak around their giant companions. Nice. What about you, Melina? Brown dwarfs out in the desert, like TOI 263b, just might be able to quench our thirst to understand the mysteries of and intersection <laughs> of star, planet, and brown dwarf formation. Nice. Lovely. Cute. Lovely. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> so when I first was thinking about these two astrobites, I had kind of envisioned that they were both identifying extremes in the brown dwarf world, right? An extremely close brown dwarf and a brown dwarf companion to an M dwarf in a surprising detection. But actually, Alex, from your presentation, it sounds like this is extremely common, that it could be a lot of M stars have brown dwarf companions. So I guess in the search for the extreme, they found the mundane. I don't know what the interpretation <laughs> is there. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, red giants, like I said, they only stay in this phase for 1% of their lifetime. So even like yeah. the subset of red giants in this particular phase exhibiting long secondary periods, like all of these, you're like narrowing in on a very specific category. So like they're, they seem to be very common within this subcategory. But whether right. or not that reflects, like, a really common formation process in general for brown dwarves, like, that part is not clear to me. Mm -hmm. That's a really great point. Yeah, we're not talking about all M stars. We're only talking about red giants. So, so what do extremes, in this case, tell us about the population as a whole? Why should we study those in the desert, you know? Yeah, I think they're interesting because the fact that they exist at all tells us something about how these systems must form. Mm -hmm. uh, because... These really extreme systems in the most mundane possible scenario would not be expected to form at all. <laughs> and so oftentimes the extremes are kind of what I tend to be interested in because they tell you about like some crazy dynamical evolution or like something weird that happened to make this occur. And that can end up teaching you about the mundane, but it 
also could just sort of tell you like what the range of possibilities is that needs to be considered. Yeah, and I I think that's a really good point. And I also typically think of extremes as where multiple complex processes are at work, like the intersection and the interplay between lots of those different physical processes. And so like, if you say a sample of objects that you observe all formed in exactly the same way, they all look identical, then you you can probably derive how they work and that's fine and easy. But then when you have some kind of oddball objects that are being pulled away from the central distribution by something else interacting with it or interfering in the traditional formation process, I feel like that teaches us a lot more about how all of these different pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Going back to the idea of a desert in phase space, how can we say <laughs> that it's real and not a selection bias? What if we're just really bad at detecting brown dwarfs close to their host stars? So in this particular case, I would say that it's probably real because we can see hot Jupiters. And those are basically the same thing except lower mass. Sure. But we just don't see a lot of these higher mass objects. So they're actually easier to detect than a lot of the objects we have found that are quite similar. And so that makes it more convincing to me that it's a true desert and not just like we can't see these objects very easily. I would think it would depend on the discovery method though, right? Like a transit, for example, if the mm-hmm. brown dwarves are smaller, then they'd be harder to find in that phase space. But if you're using radial velocity to get the masses, then they're more massive and then they're easier to detect. Oh, yeah. The radii of brown dwarfs are smaller than planets. That is a good point. But we mm-hmm. we can see like Neptune-sized planets and whatnot with transits. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. You know how I know that's a good point? Is that it's the exact same point that you made in my asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So with the transit method, which I would expect to be what you would use to find most of these extremely short period objects, mm-hmm. you should be able to see them with our current detection biases. But it's a good question. Like Generally, there are certainly a lot of deserts in phase space, and it's a question of, do we just not have the sensitivity that's needed to find objects there, or are they actually not there? And so another mm-hmm. one that comes mm-hmm. to mind, for me specifically, because of who I am, is the outer solar system. Oh, so you could fit a ton of Mars-sized planets out there. We could have so many that we just wouldn't have seen because right. we just don't have the sensitivity. Uh, that's not to say that they are there. They might be, but it's not really a true desert, I would say, because we can't say we have the detection limits needed to actually rule them out or say that they're there. Yeah, so I would say I wouldn't call a particular part of phase space a desert unless you actually know that you should be able to see stuff there and you just don't. Hmm. That's a good point, right? I guess the the pitfall could be if you really think you can see stuff there, but you can't, right? For example, you know, there are other selection biases in determining exoplanets where, right, we have all these hot Jupiters. You can really think, oh, the universe is made of hot Jupiters at a certain point in the history of exoplanets before, you know, techniques improved. So, and I don't think anybody leapt to a conclusion that strong, but I think it can be dangerous when you really think you're going to be able to detect it if it were there and you can't detect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Last question and a fun one. Could a brown dwarf host a planet or a moon with life? Oh, hmm. how much radiation do you need for life? I mean, okay. We're talking human-like life. Seems hard. Earth-based life. Right? Yeah. Life as yeah. we know it on Earth. So like plant photosynthesis, 
I feel like as we know it would probably not be able to occur. Maybe because... if the brown dwarf was orbiting a star, <laughs> that might help. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Wait, so, so you're thinking of like a hierarchical system of like a yeah. star with a brown dwarf with a planet. That seems perfectly feasible. Yeah. yeah We've got, yeah. that's like the equivalent of a moon in the solar system. <laughs> seems reasonable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but a brown dwarf by itself, I think maybe not unless there was some, like say it had plants on it that could photosynthesize with photons peaking in the infrared like yeah. maybe that would be possible yeah tell but, me what the flux is at different wavelengths from a ground dwarf and i might be able to answer that for you but i don't <laughs> let's just stare at the sed and then answer this question yeah <laughs> how long does a brown dwarf stay pretty hot before it's basically cooled off to planet temperature millions billions no idea I mean, life on Earth took ballpark about a billion years to exist after Earth's formation. So if it only is a few, even tens of millions of years, there's not enough time based on our evolutionary history. Yeah, there's also an interesting, I don't know, I've thought about it from the radiation and mutation side of things too, that if you don't have intense enough radiation, then you can't produce variation in a genetic population to get the like... Uh, survival of the fittest kind of thing that makes a species robust against shifts in climate whatever so i also wonder to that extent like maybe you could form one like very homogenous population and then they all immediately get wiped out when something happens that's an interesting point right early life on earth required some radiation to be able to develop and even now like genetic diversity is determined at least to some extent by radiation from space that changes our dna and with that we will conclude episode 46 brown dwarfs in unusual places so these brown dwarfs may have been found in unusual places but you can find links to the astrobites in the very usual places our show notes (laughs) in fact astro soundbites is found in all the usual places apple podcasts spotify google podcasts soundcloud now amazon music and Audible. I want to give a quick shout out to Allie McCarthy, who complained a while back that we hadn't done a Brown Dwarf episode in a long time. So here it is, Allie, and I hope it was as great (laughs) as you ever imagined it could be. Just for you, Allie. Brown Dwarfs! (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. I'm thinking of an asteroid. What do you think?